Hello everybody and welcome back to the Literary Salon Podcast. It's me, Damien Barr, bringing you another book of the week. Now I'm really excited um, about this one. It's part of a series called The Darkland Tales. Uh, The books aren't connected, but what they are is a look at Scottish history or a moment in Scottish history. Um, And the first one was Rizzio by Denise Mina. The second one was Hex by Jenny Fagan, a witchy story. And the third one is Nothing Left to Fear from Hell, a brilliant title, by Alan Warner. And you will know Alan Warner. He was a guest on the Big Scottish Book Club. He wrote Morven Caller, often cited as one of the best Scottish novels of the last 40 years, a big favourite um, of Doug Stewart. And he wrote a book called The Sopranos, which became a stage play and a film called Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker, S-U-C-C-O-U-R. And it's absolutely hilarious and brilliant. So anyway, Alan Warner is a man of many talents. This is in keeping with the Darkland tales, a very slim book. It's a very tiny little novella, but it's totally brilliant. In it, Alan reimagines the events after the Battle of Culloden in 1745, when Charles Edward Stuart, AKA Bonnie Prince Charlie, escapes to France eventually. Um, Charles's escape is hellish. It's very, it's, you know, it's usually depicted on tea trays as very romantic and dainty and happening in a rowing boat. This is like midgy ridden bogs, terror, pursuit, absolute fear. It's a moment in history brought to life through fiction. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Stuart Kelly, the venerable Scottish critic and author, said the book is a triumph. So there you go. Here is Alan Warner with a reading from Nothing Left to Fear from Hell. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, It's lovely to be invited on to Damien Barr's Literary Salon. And I'll read a section from my new novel, which is about Bonnie Prince Charlie, set in 1746, who is on the run. This is a sequence from chapter two, where he and some of his companions are making their way across one of the Hebridean islands, trying to get to their next boat, and they come upon an old house. The Prince O'Sullivan, Father Alan MacDonald and Ned Burke, on an afternoon trek to the latest embarkation, came upon a lone, lowly black house of haphazard clods atop low walls, moated by a glistening ring of puddled, fresh-wet muck. The dwelling appeared as a thing erupted out of the earth itself, risen from ages of stone before written histories. Nothing moved but the hearth smoke which idled at the side of the poor damp turf roof and birch thatch, until a hunched beast broke from the rear, sideways, trying to make straight out into the peat bog, dark cloakings, scarf-muffled, mummified skull. So stooped and so stunted was it that each man momentarily took it for a black sheep or hog. Yet O'Sullivan lowered his hand, which had shot to his sword hilt, and he was upon that creature in a few hasty steps. Hold up, woman, hold up. He spoke some words of Irish. It turned its terrible head to him, then upon them all. Its face was as midden black as the bog puddles. A terrible frown cracked along the brow, showing some tender pink in a single serration, 
like the glistening raw streak against the charcoal of barbecued mutton, skewered fresh and smoking from fire. This is a mad woman or witch, the father forewarned, living in chosen hermitage, scorned. What pity, the prince said. Bring her by me. These creatures bite, sire, Ned cautioned, or sweep rags away to leave naked sights hard to cast for memory. The prince laughed. Look, my fellows, O'Sullivan is feared. He who fears no man. He will kill men. Yet this Irishman goes canny with a she-thing. He who stands firm on two feet when a tall dragoon comes at him on a white horse. He turned a laughing, imploring face to his accomplices. I have seen his bravery with my own eyes, but today he meets a match, he called out. Give her a penny, for Christ's sake, sir. The prince crossed deliberately to Ned and intimately addressed him, so the younger man visibly stiffened at this private bestowal. Ned, hear this. The prince spoke in a virtual whisper, face close up to Ned's cheek. An Englisher dragoon near Carlisle was come through too far at our rear. O'Sullivan caught off his horse, directing our men, came around on the safe left side of the devil, cleverly took his sword point, and, as if spearing meat from the campaign fire, put his point in, where the dragoon's tall boot ended and stalking began. He pushed forth the blade, and the squeal of a girl came from that English boy's mouth. That big English rider's sword was brought down, and, in the midst of such danger, he simply sheathed it in scabbard and dropped rein. His horse circled, and that rider began to feel at his fresh wound with his bare fingertips. A curious sight, and save for prisoners and taken officers, as close as enemy ever came to my person in hot heat, for I had drawn my fine sword too, to find it resting in my hand without reckoning it there. Cautiously, he added, looking around them, though surely this closeness to the enemy could change any day now if I am to be taken. Aye, Ned, that Englishman sat in saddle, middle of that lively melee, as if he never knew what war was, until a sharp wound brought him from his sleep, leg out of stirrup, making quadrilles with his foot and his toes to test its remaining possibilities for a future dance in some great ballroom. He laughed. Then the cheeky brave scoundrel trotted off to the rear as we mocked cruelties after him, his commander and king. The helpless primitive was being led back towards them by O'Sullivan, utilising a mix of gestures and gentle encouragements to her left shoulder with his sword hilt. The long blade harmlessly dropped to the vertical, so that he did not have to touch her with his own gloveless hand. He repeatedly curdled his nose, flicked his head sourly backwards at the wafts of her vibrant spoor. The hems of her sacking shroud were a sodden mash that dragged over heather clumps, so the creature's means of phantom locomotion beneath were invisible. Her dark mask fell to uneven ground, then defiantly rose, and she gave them all mad white eyes. Her arthritic hands were also reptilian black, but for the lalunas and nail plates which for some reason, pruning shellfish perhaps, were perfectly clean, so even the pale cuticles showed, high and pink against the ancient grime of her ways, 
the fingers as innocent and somehow tenderly human as those of a bairn. Come, sir, we smell no sweeter for sure, the prince beckoned. Stand restful before me, madam, no danger here. I predict you know it not. I am my father's son, your prince and true king to be, and you, my loyal subject. She made sounds like a frighted dog, and the Italian prince before her blinked. What does she say to me in your good language, father? That isn't her language, sire. She farted massively, like a gun horse, and there was a gurgle from her midriff, muffled by her vast slag of leerings. O'Sullivan stepped further back. The prince smiled. Do I hear there a loyal prayer to King George? These pirate men all laughed. That dangerous, unified mirth of men. The prince sighed. He stood straight and surveyed all around him, the ghastly hovel and these flat islands of forever, a vast treeless stage, unhinged of purpose and formed out of absence. So much fear and one with so little to lose in this world. Bowels loosed when the fear should reside with us fine fellows, we who have nothing left to fear from hell, which seeks us everywhere. Strange, no? She fell to her knees so completely the prince took the flattery. He stooped low himself, spoke softly to her, holding up a hand. Hush, madam, you have less to fear in me than from the robin bird at winter. O'Sullivan had come by his side, weary and defensive should any small offence be displayed. With his calf pouch he fumbled rapidly, producing the smallest coin he could select and he then handed the currency to the prince. The woman's eyes swiftly had the coin locked in very sane recognition. The black, sooted hand of a chimney clamberer reached out, the palm trembling, and the claw closed instantly on the arms, which the prince cautiously dropped to avoid her touch. Her head nodded in pleased acceptance. Is coin of any use in this rough place, my men? Never far to go in this world to reach a place where money comes of use, the father stated. How do you eat, madam? The prince frankly inquired. Teach us something. Ned's voice, ever located behind his master's back, asked. Might she have in there meat or bread? Bread, huh? The father looked at the black house. Her walls may as well be hung with coloured jewels from the Orient. The prince straightened suddenly, and the woman flinched. How could we even take a crust from her, my man? The father nodded obediently, but still said, Ned, look inside. The prince kneeled again to study his latest object of interest. Have you no family here, madam? No daughter or kin? Father! Ask her to tell me how she eats in this drearily chosen spot. The father came forward and spoke Gallic loudly, as if he were shouting warnings into a dark cave. Come about our stomach. The woman was looking up at him in some amazement. Suddenly she answered in a voice calibrated through the incursion of smoke. Then she fell silent once more and crossed herself repeatedly. Then she spoke again at some length with trembling, petrified pauses. 
Everyone waited, still leaning forward as if he were cautiously peering over the huge cliff edges of Trotternish. The prince asked quietly, What does she speak of, sir? The father coughed. <clears throat> the beautiful she-creatures of the ocean crawl out of the water at night and bring her food. Ned was at the partly collapsed arch of the entrance to her dwelling. Barricaded by something that resembled an ill-fitting door, crossed boards of faded driftwood fused with warped boat planks, hinged to the jam by lashed and frayed ropes. Young Ned called back, Selkies and mermaids, well, I hope they come in daylight too. He tugged and rattled at the ramshackle hatch. The woman's head swung around, alarmed. Take care, O'Sullivan shouted without looking away from the huddled woman. An armed man could be within. The father spoke again in Gaelic, to reassure her, it would seem. Why does she make life here, father? I see no natural advantages of such a place. Why anywhere, sire? The pickings are the same. Her ancestors and those before will have been rooted in this spot. Tell me more of her curious sea creatures, Lack of food fevers her disabled mind, sire. Oh, come, come, shouted Ned. Smoke rioted out of the forced doorway to the black house, and the young man waved his arms before his face, then cautiously ducked into the woman's quarters. It knows how to set a peat fire, sure, O'Sullivan said, nodding. We could make use of fire for an hour. It is always such hazard, sire, O'Sullivan replied. One of us must keep watch, if so, then swiftly onward. Never tarry, never tarry. We need to make for the boat. The prince turned to him. What if troopers and an English officer come and learn she harboured us? Would they sack her? The crash of an overturned pot came from within the black house. I fear they would think the work already done, sire. Would they make sport of a crone like this, Captain O'Sullivan, those men? Ned walked backwards out of the fuming doorway, as if conjured onto a magician's stage, followed by a vertical body of signal smoke which peeled from him upward and evaporated. He wiped his eyes, lifted the door close again. What? No plump goose hung and plucked? the father asked. Troopers will make sport of anything, sire, O'Sullivan said. The prince chortled. No, no, it is unthinkable. We cannot fight such an enemy as would consider it. He stared at the crouched woman, her breathing so distressed. O'Sullivan said, They would tumble her shoulders into an open barrel on its side, sire, so as not to see the granny face, toss buckets of water on the rump end to freshen, and pintalize her regularly, making use of both vents there. It's the way of war for scummish troops. O'Sullivan, the prince protested, then laughed. We would as well take our waving doozies onto a formed and smoking dung heap, poke a hole and have pleasure with that. That's the English for you, Highness. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. 
That was Alan Warner reading exclusively for the Literary Salon. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Nothing Left to Fear from Hell is published by Polygon, which is a literary imprint of Scottish independent press Berlin. And it's available now in all good bookshops and on our shop on bookshop.org. So if you want to support the salon, go and buy it from our shop online. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, um, the other Darkland tales are Denise Mina's Rizzio about the murder of Mary Queen of Scots' secretary and Jenny Fagan's Hex about witches then and now, all based on real life parts of Scottish history. There is a fourth instalment in this series coming called Columba Bones, which is a novel from David Gregg, which takes us back to 825, exploring the clash of early Christianity and paganism. It's got a maroon Viking, a monk who's stolen a sword and the hunt for a holy relic. I'm very excited about it too. They are a really brilliant collection and surely one of them's going to be a play soon. Anyway, if you've got a friend who loves historical fiction or a Scottish story, be sure to share this episode with them. Thank you for listening and join us again soon. Bye.